and welcome back to another hour of the Sunday Tea Show right here on 96.9 All FM on your radio, allfm.org, wherever you are in the world, online. Joined by me, Ruth O'Reilly, for this second hour. Delighted to be keeping you company. And on today's show, we are having a bit of a Halloween special. Oh, yes, we've got music, poetry and short stories from a fabulous lineup. Some of my favourite people here. We're going to have a short story from fantastic best-selling author Tula Messer and it's going to be read by chart-topping book-selling comedian <laughs> Philip Carter. Also, a new author on the block by the name of Drew Halfpenny. He's a steampunk author. We're going to have a little short story from him and one of Manchester's finest recording artists, which is the wonderful Conor Malloy. And Conor Malloy has actually performed at the Royal Albert Hall for Paul Heaton, don't you know? So we are in good company today. And because we have just um, started this new new cycle time-wise we are now in GMT the clocks went back I thought I'd start off with a, a track from Connor and this is one of his tracks that he recorded a couple of years ago I believe and it's called Time I thought the time moves slowly but then it all goes like my mama told me it isn't that slow so I'm trying to notice the right and I'm glad I got you here by my side time moves slowly but then it all goes like my mama told me it isn't that slow so I'm trying to notice the right and I'm glad I got you here by my side Time just Move slowly But then it all goes Like my mama told me That it isn't that slow So I'm trying To notice the right And I'm glad I'm glad it's you that I found Time just hanging around Just hanging around Just hanging around I'm glad it's you that I found Just hanging around Just hanging around just hanging around I'm glad it's you that I found so that was the wonderful Connor Malloy and I've got more from Connor coming up really shortly more on the Halloween theme but first of all let's have a magical track from Coldplay Yeah. 
after all that we've been through still believe in magic oh yes i do oh yes i do play there with magic you're listening to the sunday tea show right here on 96.9 all fm on your radio all fm.org wherever you are in the world online you're joined by me ruth o'reilly and we're having a bit of a halloween special today and one of my most magical friends of the show the fantastic janie sparkly barkley has also magically come up with a, a new halloween poem as well which i am really looking forward to playing for you a little bit later on but let's kick off with one of my favorite halloween tracks from the fantastic conor malloy yes he's back making new music he's actually self-produced a whole new album it will be out next year but he is kind of teasing in a gig in the meantime i'll tell you a little bit more about that later on but first of all we're going to have this um halloween track that he recorded a couple of years ago this is fun enjoy Lately I have been feeling like I'm hairier than usual My nails have grown much sharper and my rage is inexcusable I smell things more acutely now and I never lose a trail My bad back's not so bad no more and I think I have a tail Ow. Step back in time, I'm over to Saturday one week I was out for carrots from the grocers down the street I nipped into the butchers, thought I'd get myself a treat I said, what have you got on offer, butch? This lovely piece of meat I As I stepped outside, I saw that it was rather dark I heard a funny noise, I thought it echoed from the park Investigator rustling in the trees And then I saw a sight that would bring fear to Hercules Ah, Was it a man? Was it a beast? Did he have life? Did he have fleas? Did he have fleas? And then he bit me. So hard. It took some time to realize the scene was quite absurd. I asked him nicely to refrain, but I don't think he heard. He seemed quite insistent, I did not want to be rude But it was rather painful in the leg that he had chewed out 
tasty, but there's still something I need. I'm And to see what I could find But nothing looked appealing Except butchers sweet behind I picked up a rack of ribs And took them to the till And he said Blimey mate, are you alright? Cause you look pretty ill Am I a man? Am I a beast? Is butcher shopkeeper is he a feast? And then I bit him. So hard. Now, once a month, I sink into a state of such depravity. For instance, at the dentist, when I went to fix a cavity, and Barbara said my teeth resembled. Burst of rage, I beat her head into the ground. Ah, I learned the man who bit me was a bill from down the lane. Now, Butch and Bill and Babs and I have wolf juice in our veins. There's little good blood left for us inside our little village. Soon we'll have to find a slightly larger place to pillage. Ah, But he refused to compromise on our juicy lunar diet So we bit him So that was Village Moon by the fantastic Connor Malloy. And one of the things that I really enjoy about all of Connor's work is he's a great storyteller. So all of his songs contain great stories. Do check out the video to Village Moon on YouTube because it's hilarious. And Connor has not let us down because this year again he's done um, a little bit of a, an epic piece for, for Halloween. But this time he's collaborated with the fantastic voiceover artist Ed Allman to produce this new poem for the season. Um, it's for younger listeners, but I think people of all ages will love this. This is courtesy of Cherry Soup Productions and it's The Chapel on the Hill. A glistening golden shimmer in the middle of the night that slices through the darkness and swallows up the light. Oh, so peaceful in the daytime. You can visit if you will. But after midnight, no one ventures to the chapel on the hill. When the world is but a whisper and the air is thick and still, there's a great ghoulish fiesta at the chapel on the hill. Count Dracula comes early, for his waking hours are few, and he sports a crisp tuxedo with a cape of satin blue, and he drinks a bloody Mary. She is sprawled across the table, as he recounts a chilling tale to a man who's ghostly pale. When the birds have all stopped tweeting, and the sleepers have their fill, 
There's a fiendish gang that's meeting, and they're all dressed up for greeting, for they know their time is fleeting at the chapel on the hill. Next, a band of banshees, who are elegantly dressed. They look divine when they are happy, but horrific when distressed. So to keep their spirits buoyant as they float on down the aisle, the Count jumps up to greet them with a charming, toothy smile. Now there's Dr. J. He's on the hunt for Mr. Hyde. He's been searching night and day, but he has never looked inside. And Frankenstein's creation, who is rather fond of gin, is in a state of degradation, so they barely let him in. There are witches in the corner. There are wizards there as well. The Devil's Band is playing symphonies composed in hell. Now they all stand to attention as Beelzebub arrives in a vibrant crimson carriage pulled by demons from the sky. He strides up to the bar, orders seven whiskey sours, and he drinks them all at once, for he'll leave within the hour. Now you've heard about the party, and perhaps you'd like to know if this ghostly, ghastly venue is a place you'd like to go. If you visit and see nothing, you can exit at your will. But if you see a ghostly glisten, or hear shrieking when you listen, if you smell a ghastly odor mixed with spirits, slime, and soda, if you feel a certain glancing, or hear beastly footsteps dancing, then perhaps you'll spend the evening. But the welcome is deceiving, for many never end up leaving here, the chapel on the hill. That was the amazing voice of Ed Allman there performing The Chapel on the Hill, which was written by the fantastic Connor Malloy. And that piece comes courtesy of Cherry Soup Productions. So do check out The Chapel on the Hill uh, again online on YouTube if you'd like to hear that poem again and Connor Malloy is actually taking part in the We Are Manchester Live festival in this November it's going to be the 26th of November at Manchester Atma in Manchester very popular venue and that's 7pm on the 26th of November part of the We Are Manchester Live and I think they did a festival online during um, Covid era and that was a fantastic festival that they put on online so thank god we can actually go to venues do check out Conor Malloy there's lots of other guests that will be performing there at the We Are Live Manchester Festival as well and that's the 26th of November at the Atma Manchester so look that up on Eventbrite FM, 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 FM. We will have the first of our scary short stories um, after a track, and it will be Frank Sinatra with Old Black Magic. One of the things that I've been wanting to do during um, this Halloween season is to explore the theme of... Uh, 
the things that are real but scary, you know, away from the, the ghosts and, and the pumpkins, what can actually be scary within our real environment. And Tula's story very much captures the, the essence of that. And it's read by fantastic comedian and author and straight from, from Comic-Con, he's becoming a chart-topping, best-selling author, Philip Carter. So we'll hear that after Frank. That old black magic has me in its spell That old black magic that you weave so well those icy fingers up and down my spine the same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine the same old tingle that i feel inside and then that elevator starts its ride It's caught in the tide I should stay away But what can I do? I hear your name And I'm a flame A flame with such a burning desire That only your kiss Put out the fire Cause you are the lover I have waited for The mate that fate had me created for And every time your lips meet mine Darling, down and down I go spin, loving the spin that I'm in, under that old black magic called love. That old black magic, Frank Sinatra, and I know that Tula is a big fan of the Rat Pack. Now, coming up, we're going to have a story from Tula. It's the first in a short story series. This one is called Dead Ahead, and it's part of a short story series called The um, Omnibus of the Ominous, and that's available on Kindle, free on Kindle Unlimited. And it's also um, part of a, an ongoing a collection of horror stories that Tula has actually written. So she's got a full-length novel called called Mortal End. And if you purchase um, Dead Ahead, you will get a bit of a sample of Mortal End as well, which has got a very spooky tale on fairy tales. 
And this piece that we're going to play today, Dead Ahead, it's actually read by the phenomenal Philip Carter, Mr. Who Built the Humans himself, and following from his success at Manchester Comic Con this year, he is actually going to be giving away an epic Who Built the Humans uh, free bundle. It's not just Who Built the Humans, it's also three more free books only this weekend. So the Who Built Humans deadline closes on October the, the 31st. The other three books will be November the 1st, but it depends on your timelines. Best thing is to go and grab those free books now. So go ahead, get your free books at realphilipcarter.substack.com. That's realphilipcarter.substack.com. You know, go search that out and get your free books. Um, yes, Phil is definitely one to watch out for. And he will be on Fab Radio International tomorrow. So let's have it, one of Tula's uh, favourite tracks to start this. And then you'll hear Phil with Dead Ahead. Down to Florida We welcome you to the Sunshine State They're kicking back and soaking up the rays Every day in Florida I'm in Florida The sun is setting over Tampa Bay It's like a Caribbean holiday South Beach, the Dolphins too. Springtime for the Yankees and the Dodger Blue. Golf courses, beaches, it's easy to spot them. You like the Gators? Man, we got them down in Florida. We welcome you to the Sunshine State. A category five hurricane couldn't spoil the day. This is Dead Ahead. There was an atmosphere of expectancy hanging lethargically in the humid air, which was humming like electricity pylons with the sounds of thousands of crickets. It was September in central Florida, and the locals knew that something, anything could and would happen at any given moment, filling them with a sense of nonchalance at the most bizarre of happenings, whatever those happenings happened to be. Sometimes, 
those same locals would laugh at and about tourists, who to them seemed to be more aware of the neon billboards advertising heart-hardening fast food and sickly sweet beverages than on what was going on around them. Florida, filled with predators, oftentimes only spitting distance away, is not always the fun-filled theme park and merchandise mecca that flip-flopped Ron John wearing coconut-smelling holidaymakers seem to think it is. Not all vacationers make it home. Some are devoured by lifestyle, and some are just devoured. Just ask those who have been constricted by a 25-foot-long Burmese python before it grasps them with its razor-sharp fangs and coils its cool, dry, muscular body around them until they suffocate and it swallows them whole. Or those who suddenly have an immense reptile's jaws snatch them as they are dragged underwater until their lungs burn with excruciating pain, filling with feculent bog water whilst they are overcome with a euphoria they have never known before. No tourist thinks of those things, especially when it is too late. Without a drop of rain having yet fallen, the sky overhead turned an angry purple, and the weight of the rolling clouds made them sag and droop lower and lower until it seemed as though you could easily reach out and touch them. Not that any self-respecting Floridian would do so. They would likely be burned to a crisp by the haphazard strikes of lightning that spiked and sparked within those nebulous wolf-puffs, almost as if the accumulating cumulonimbus clouds contained a sinister life force that existed only in the hazy ether. He had spent his life outdoors, hanging around the dense greenery that grew in abundance along the rim of the many lakes that overflowed into swampland throughout the state. Alligators, floating like half-submerged dead branches, aware of every movement and noise around them, didn't seem to be remotely interested in any vibration audible or otherwise that he made. He was glad of that, although blissfully unaware that his life could be over in a snap, having had it so easy up until now because of his imp apparent invisibility to the marauders and murderers that nature provided so abundantly. The heat was overwhelming, stifling, making it hard to move, so he hovered in one spot, shaded by bay tree branches above him and the long, damp grass beneath him spotted with rotted and custard apples. It's not such a bad life, all things considered, he thought to himself. He would have been chewing on a blade of sawgrass as he contemplated this, but he had learned through others' mistakes that you only do so if you want your mouth to resemble a steak tartare. Looking up from the relative safety of his spot, his favourite spot, only feet from the old road, he watched a large, bald eagle circling so high in the sky that it looked like a speck of dust floating in a plume of hot air. Imposing, as it swooped and circled thousands of feet above him, occasionally offering a flash of its hooked, sunshine-yellow beak as the rays of the dying sun caught it. This solitary beast was searching for any unsuspecting victim way below, whose life it would take as and when the hands on the clock struck fate. Whatever and whomever finally caught this incredible creature's attention would have no time to hide or panic before their life was taken mercilessly and in an instant. Despite his outwardly relaxed demeanour, he felt certain that this raptor was stalking him, having noticed its glassy eyes following his every move over the previous few days, whilst its sharp black talons served only to underline the danger he would be in should this bald eagle decide to turn on him. Seeing the majestic bird commanding the skies right above him triggered an element of paranoia, but nevertheless, an invisible cloak of bravado had served him well up until now, so he would continue to wear it until it was threadbare. Nature, albeit beautiful, is widely accepted to be cruel beyond measure, 
A cruelty he wholeheartedly accepted. A cruelty he knew was also a ticking time bomb within him. A ticking time bomb that was accelerating moment by moment on this particular day, and one that he didn't consciously stop to think about or examine. What would be the point, he thought to himself. This is my nature. He lived his life guided purely by instinct, and today that instinct was drawing him ever closer to a wonderland of sublime devastation and destruction. Just across the way from where he was, joyfully and superficially contemplating matters of life and death, was his unknowing counterpart. She, despite her naivety and because of it, had wandered boldly into his vicinity, but was yet to notice his presence, continuing her activity innocently, as if she was the only one around. Although he was hidden deep in the vegetation, it wouldn't be long before her senses were soon alerted to his existence in her vicinity, most likely picking up his hot and pungent scent, and by that time she would be so close to him it would be hard for her to make a break for it, even if she wanted to. Sometimes our subconscious plays tricks on us whether we like it or not. He had become aware of her almost immediately from his verdant vantage point. Her lightness of being had immediately aroused his senses, already heady with the cacophony of wildlife and scarcity of easy breathing caused by the ever-thickening steam rising upwards to meet the viscous raindrops that were beginning to fall. He didn't mind the rain. It was like water off a duck's back to him, but she blindly moved closer towards him, trying to find shelter amongst the low-hanging branches that he was patiently lounging beneath, lounging, watching, and longing. He wouldn't have to wait much longer. For what seemed like an infinity, he kept his cool and remained deathly still, letting her come to him, letting her enter his lair without giving himself away in any way. He never once lost his composure, despite the excitement that was now pulsing through every cell in his body. The one thing he couldn't control were the invisible hormonal secretions that he was emitting, that at any moment now would alert her to his hungry, hankering, desperate presence. Still, she came nearer. By now, he, by now she knew he was there. It was hard for her to resist what she knew would be her downfall, but turning back and making an attempt at a getaway was not an option. It was like he had a wound, an invisible but unbreakable thread around her middle, and was reeling her in towards him excruciatingly slowly, aware that, come what may, they were now bound together. Fifteen miles away, a white Ford Edge with a scrape along its front bumper was racing along the toll-free 192 highway. The SUV was filled with a puddle of empty water bottles, food wrappers, hastily packed luggage and the sublime voices of the Rat Pack, at times accompanied with some level of an acceptable pitch by the occupants of the vehicle who were coming to the end of their two-week vacation. They had travelled for thousands of miles across the state from one end to the other and were sun-kissed but not yet brown. They had been far too busy to sit or lie still for five minutes on a sun lounger, instead enthusiastically ticking off numerous achievements on their Florida to-do list. Everglades and Big Cypress National Preserve, check. Sunset at Key West, check. Cocktails in South Beach, check. Visit friends in Fort Myers, check. Glass-bottomed boat cruise at Silver Springs, check. Airboat ride in alligators, check. Horse riding at the Disney Ranch, check. Shopping at the outlets, check. It had been a whirlwind visit, and they had loved every fun-packed second of it. Now they were sad to be leaving and heading back home. In fact, they had considered missing their flight and just staying until they had had their fill. There were we're hiring signs in almost every store and restaurant they visited. 
However, practicality had kicked in as they wondered how they would get away with keeping the rental car without funds and had visions of having to do a Thelma and Louise as a parade of cop cars chased them down and forced them over the edge of a red rock cliff to their untimely deaths. So here they were, driving a few miles over the speed limit and heading toward the airport, trying not to be sad that their break to paradise was almost over. Ooh, did you see that, she said. See what, he said. He was totally focused on the road, looking out for signs of hidden police cars. That, look, there it is again. I didn't see anything. What did you see? He asked, thinking it would be easier to cut to the chase and spend the next 45 minutes playing a guessing game. The lightning, look. There it is again, she said. And you can read the rest of this story on Amazon. That was Dead Ahead by Tula Mesa. You've just heard Dead Ahead, which was the first in a short story series by Tula Mesa called The Ominous, The Omnibus of the Ominous, and that's available on Kindle and free on Kindle Unlimited. So that's Dead Ahead, and it's the first in a short story series, and the short story series is called The Omnibus of the Ominous. Tula does love her alliteration, and you also heard that being performed by the fantastic Philip Carter, who was making his um, voice acting debut. Go. All FM. And Phil is giving away lots of free goodies from Who Built Humans to some horror-specific work, and that's available if you go on to his Substack, which is Real Philip Carter at substack.com. Anyway, continuing on with this Halloween special, next up we are going to have two poems from the fantastic Sparkly Barkley, Janie Barkley, also known as the pub poet. 
she performs in and around Manchester and I thought that seeing as she wrote me this fantastic Halloween piece for this year I would first let you hear last year's one when she kindly wrote for us that time as well so enjoy this on the 31st of October, I plan to keep my composure, stray from the normal mundane routine and cast a love spell on Halloween. What better day to make haunting ghosts vanish and pesky love girls be gone, banished, and all the wrongings in between, you'll all be dust this Halloween. Because the next one will not disappoint nor make me cry. He'll have integrity and Roy Keane's thighs. Bring on my bad love vaccine when I chant my spell this Halloween. I'm going to make a potion powered by the tides of the ocean, adding leaves of the dragon blood tree and seeds of the Takashantieri, topped off with drops from an angel's spleen to help my love spell this Halloween. He'll be generous and kind, soothing to the mind, which will be blown. Upon my throne, I will be queen when I cast a love spell this Halloween. If I get this charm right, the forecast for romantic future is bright, sending my spell to intervene at the end of the month on Halloween. No tears, but those of laughter. Maybe a happy ever after. Memory making, breathtaking, like the Chapel Sistine. Aim high on the bounciest trampoline. Play the most rhythmic tambourine. Cast a love spell this Halloween. Go. <laughs> Can't escape Halloween. It's there, loud and proud, for all to hear and see. Or not see. With the scary cheap contact lenses that can make you go blind. Or the poisonous fake blood that can take you out of your mind. People forget the tradition, how celebrating Halloween began. It's all missing. Where's the nod to the Celts and sound? The pagans, Gregory III and his crown, the true meaning. Boniface made a place for all martyrs, the forefathers of a story now mostly untold. It's about buying cheap outfits these days, not all saints and all souls. Maybe one day the truth will unfold about the ghosts and the ghouls. Don't take it lightly, don't be fooled. When you put your hands together, and the glass spells out something that means the world to you. Shot, horror, horror, shot, shot, horror I'll shout myself hoarse for your 
of space there with female of the species. Big thank you to the fantastic Sparkly Barkley for sending us in that new poem and the old one last year for Halloween. We'll have more from Janie really soon. And now on with another story. People tell me that they love short stories. Um, on a Sunday afternoon. So back by popular demand is the fantastic Drew Halfpenny. He is a debut author. He's just released his debut novel, The Conical Conundrum. He's a, a historical fiction writer who loves to write stories around in and around Manchester. And this piece is entitled The Disappearance of Uriah Quince. And it's part of a, a new series that he's doing as well. So enjoy this by Drew Halfpenny.
This is a tale from the upcoming anthology of Victorian detective stories set in and around Manchester from the casebook of Norville Slack by Drew Halfpenny. The Disappearance of Uriah Quince, October 1895 One of our most macabre cases began All Hallows Eve in 1895. Just after six o'clock, when I was about to head home after a busy day at A Division, Constable Popperwell bustled in, red-faced and gasping for breath. Glad I caught you, sir, he said, as he handed me a scroll note from DCI Ironstone. I was to make haste and meet him at Rokeshaw House. Now, Jack Ironstone was a calm, methodical investigator, and this was not his modus operandi. Something was very wrong, and time was of the essence. I shouldered open the station door and stumbled onto King Street, buttoning my overcoat against the frigid air. The driver of the only hansom in the, in the rank tips his topper as I race towards him. Rockshaw House, I shouted, and don't spare the horses. He rolled his eyes. I'm sure old Daisy will trot as fast as she can, squire, he said. Then as I clambered aboard, he cracked his whip and Daisy's startled leap pitched me headlong into the cab. For 25 bone-shaking minutes, Daisy clippity-clopped over the cobbles until we arrived at our destination, where the Bridgewater traverses the Manchester Ship Canal via Barton Aqueduct. Backlit by an almost full moon, pale fingers of mist reached up from the cut's deathly still water as I alighted from the hansom in the shadow of the old Gothic house. Once owned by the eccentric recluse Uriah Quince, it had remained unoccupied since his mysterious disappearance over a decade earlier. Now, new industries drawn by the success of the ship canal sought land along the margins of the cut. So with the owner in absentia, workmen had been dismantling the ancient edifice. Slate by slate, stone by stone. Although they had raised the outermost walls to the ground, partial demolition made the interior resemble the crenellations of a drunken mason. But from their midst, a three-storey ironclad structure soared into the sable sky. Over here! To my left, a street lamp illuminated Ironstone's wildly waving white handkerchief, and I kicked up decades of musty dust as I picked my way through the rubble to the raw time bench where he sat. You're right, gaffer, I said. Aye, lad. Without looking up, he pressed a damp envelope into my palm, then meticulously quartering his handkerchief before folding it into his breast pocket, he slid sideways along the seat to make room. Faded ink had leached across the water-stained envelope, rendering the handwritten ele handwriting illegible. I reached inside and pulled out a dozen pages of fine, black-edged notepaper each covered in rust-brown, carefully crafted cursive. Ink's an odd colour, I said, but the penmanship is skilled. A whiff reminiscent of goose fat made me lift the pages to my nostrils. I recalled from, recoiled from the pungent aroma and turned to Ironstone. Where'd you get these, boss? He leaned forward and pointed across my body at the towering structure. Workmen found the envelope wedged under that door. Someone had pushed it from within. He spat the words through gritted teeth. His face was a twisted demonic gargoyle as he wrestled to control his emotions. We had experienced much during the three years we'd worked together, but I had never seen him so troubled. Read it, he said. Beneath the streetlight, the paper took on the pale green hue of the gas mantle. I squinted at the writing. To whomever has the misfortune to find this message, forgive me. I glanced at Ironstone. His grim nod spurred me to continue. 
By my estimation, today is the 28th day of November in the year of our Lord, 1884. Before I succumb to madness, in these my last hours, I choose by my own free will to write a chronicle of the events that have brought me to this damnation, as a warning to those who dare enter. I swallowed hard. Out of the corner of my eye, Ironstone slowly shook his head as he lowered his face into his hands, pressing his palms to his eyes and burying his splayed stiff fingers in his hair. The note continued. A mere six months ago, I joined the household staff of Master Uriah Quince as a footman. Our numbers were few, but we were loyal to the master, under the strict supervision of housekeeper Elsie Tuttle, whom I found most agreeable. Master Quince had dismissed my predecessor for petty pilfering. Elsie warned me he had taken the betrayal to heart. So erratic his recent behaviour had become that he f she feared for his sanity. What I did not know Master Quince beforehand, I could not say whether his curmudgeonly ways were atypical, so I ignored her counsel. During my tenure in his service, my contact with him was, was rare, as he spent most of his days overseeing the alterations to the library. Often, Elsie had heard him working long into the small hours, and yet, despite his obvious obsession, not once did he invite any of us to view the fruits of his labour. Throughout the summer months, under Elsie's guidance, I settled into the household's harmonious routine. But at eleven o'clock on All Hallows' Eve, a terrible commotion roused me from my slumber. Elsie was banging on my door with such ferocity, I feared it might fly off its hinges. She ordered me to join her and the rest of the retinue downstairs. When I queried for what purpose, she would not answer. However, in view of the master's state of mind, she was fearful his reason was abominable. Waiting outside the library, so fragile was our fortitude that the chimes of the grandfather clock on the half-hour before midnight shattered our whispering vigil. Poor Elsie gasped and pressed the back of her hand to her forehead. Fearing she would swoon, I stepped forward, but she swatted me away like a common housefly. Just as Master Quince opened the library door from within, dressed in material so black it sucked the colour from its surroundings. Without a word, he beckoned us to join him. Elsie led our troop, single file, into the magnificent three-storey high room. Between the towering, book-laden shelves, paintings and tapestries from every corner of the world adorned the black, ebony-panelled walls. All around, busts and statues from long-dead empires stood on marble plinths. Such were their quality, I had little doubt these artefacts would fetch a pretty penny. He marched us to the far wall, where a tall glass box containing a single ornate golden chair with two brass levers rested atop a raised platform. Master Quince arranged us in military-precise rank, facing the box. Between matching onyx and gold Anubis statuettes resting on short marble columns. With Elsie and I bookending the younger members of staff, he inspected us like a visiting colonel. Hands clasped behind his back. I watched him stare into the eyes of each servant as he shuffled along the line. The profile of his grim countenance awakened childhood memories of punch from a seaside puppet show. Then his pallid face filled my vision. Spittle from his rattling tobacco breath cooled on my cheek. His icy grey glare burned a hole in my soul as his lips curled into the sneer of a ruffian about to kick his dog. Blood rushed to my cheeks and I lowered my eyes. The rising tremor of his clenched fist instantly transfixed my gaze. I believe in that moment, had Master Quince the means, surely he would have joyfully butchered me. But he dragged his scowl from me as he turned his back and I released the breath that I was unaware, unaware I had been holding. Then, head bowed, he hauled his gaunt body up the steps to the makeshift platform and flopped onto his golden throne, breathless. 
After a few seconds regaining his composure, he pulled himself upright, gripping the arms of his seat for support, and addressed us, his loyal subjects. His words were few, yet they have haunted my very waking moment since they spilled from his dry, devious lips. The Grim Reaper has stalked this house for too long, he said, but he shall not be the master of my fate. His chin dropped to his chest, rising and falling with his laboured breathing. Elsie and I exchanged uneasy glances in the brief silence that followed before he raised his face to look up at the small skylight in the ceiling, 50 feet above him, and spread his arms wide. When the clock strikes midnight, this real room will become my mausoleum. I shall spend eternity surrounded by my treasures, and you, he flashed a glower in my direction, I hear to bear witness to my passing. Then you shall leave with empty pockets and broken hearts, consoled by the knowledge that my torment has ended. Then he gripped the handle of the lever closest to him and the door closed with a loud hiss. Powerful machinery clanged and whirred into action as his glass sarcophagus lurched upwards, slowly scaling the wall on its rack and pinion track until it halted a few feet below the skylight. Heads back, open mouthed, we watched and waited. Outside the library, the clock chimed. On the twelfth strike, he pulled the second lever, and the box filled with a yellow haze. After only a few seconds, Uriah stiffened, then slumped sideways, never to move again. A shrill scream to my left shattered the sun's silence. Lilith, the young scullery maid, fell sobbing into Elsie's arms. I cannot speak for the others, but the reality of losing our livelihood and our home because of the madness of the old fool was a bitter pill to swallow. A click like the snap of a mouse trap made me look down. I am not a thief, nor am I a dishonest man. To this day I know not how or why, but there, tightly gripped in my clenched fist, was the onyx and gold statuette of Anubis that had stood on the marble plinth, two yards from my reach. Glowing green eyes in its grinning jackal head flickered to black before a thunderous boom proceeded, a cacophony of clanking and clattering overwhelming my senses. The walls shook violently, books cascaded from our shelves. We clapped our hands over our ears as we fell to our knees on the juddering floor. All around me unheard screams shrieked from contorted faces. After a few minutes that lasted a thousand lifetimes, the pandemonium ceased with a tumultuous clang, and our caterwauling turned to whimpers. We helped each other upright. Above us, speckled of disturbed dust glittering in the lamplight, silently twisted and twirled on their journey groundward. However, celebration of our survival withered when we discovered that an in infernal mechanism had sealed our only egress. The room had no windows save for the unreachable skylight. Minutes that stretched into hours became days as we frantically searched for a way to escape our incarceration to no avail. Weak from hunger, our despair deepened when dear Elsie found a note from Master Quince. It instructed his solicitors, Dumfrey and Dunn, to ensure each member of his household received a payment equal to two years' pay, followed by an annual stipend of three guineas thereafter. Resigned to our fate, assignment of blame was futile. With whole hope gone, our numbers dwindled. Each morning a shaft of new light streamed through the skylight, heralding the day, its journey over the topography of bodies and book-strewn floor mirrored the sun's traverse across the heavens. At night, the oil lamp reservoirs ran dry. The scratching, gnawing of rats in the walls made the bitter black nights sleepless. There, in my dark delirium, 
Master Quince's green, flickering eyes and contemptuous grin tormented me. Why did he hate me? Did he set the mechanism believing I would trigger, attempting to fill my pockets? Was he right? I cannot say. For melancholia and morbidity have clouded the memory of my true intentions. Now alone, self-loathing and propriety prevent me from recounting how I survived so long. Alas, my words run dry as my life's blood ink runs low. Forgive me, George. I caught my breath and leapt to my feet, staring at my companion. Now I understood why he alone had been called to Rorkshaw House. Jack Ironstone raised his eyes to meet my stare. Yes, Norville, he said. George Ironstone was my brother.